Okie dokie. The training world is full of technical editing courses that don't teach the high-end creativity that viewers expect. Inside the Edit was created specifically to teach you every single creative skill you'll ever need to mesmerize your audience. Hello dear friends, I hope you are having a great week wherever you are in the world. Sorry we're a day late this week, we've had a few technical problems this side. And thank you for joining me, Paddy Bird, for another episode of Once Upon a Timeline, the official podcast of Inside the Edit. We're here to talk about one thing and one thing only, the art of editing. Not the software, not the tech, just the art. We dive into all things creative when it comes to this beautiful art form. And we also talk about the psychology of editing and how to craft a sustainable career. You know, I started this podcast because I just didn't see anyone talking about these subjects. And in my experience, these are the actual subjects that matter more than anything else if the goal is a successful career as a timeline-based storyteller. So thank you for joining me and being a valued part of the Inside the Edit community. Okay, so what have we got in store for this week's episode? Well, if I'm honest... I've been thinking about this one for quite some time. It's a subject that is not only dear to my heart, but has actually been a very large part of how I see the world from both a career and a personal perspective. Now, I first heard about the idea of the Renaissance man and Renaissance woman nearly 20 years ago while reading several books on Italian history. And the subject has fascinated me ever since. Um, Like many of the things that I've read over the years, they seem to have seeped into my thought process around our particular art form and building a career in it. So on this week's show, I want to dive deep into this subject, you know, in real fine detail, just like any editor would and talk through how it can benefit us in our careers as a professional storyteller. For everyone who joined me on last Saturday's boot camp, I hope you had a great time. We certainly had some really great interactivity and questions on the day. I really enjoyed it, and I'm really, really looking forward to next month's session. It's going to be great. I'll be announcing the subject for February's bootcamp on next week's podcast. And I'm also really excited to announce that booking for our new two-week master's degree taster is now live at InsideTheEdit.com. Go and grab your seat for the fortnight's glimpse at our revolutionary MFA starting on Monday, the 5th of April. And here's the best part. It's absolutely free. Yep, it won't cost you a penny. You can go and book your place now 
at InsideTheEdit.com. Okay then, let's get started on this week's creative discussion. One of the most fascinating things about creative editing for me is that it's not one art form. It's many art forms within one. Uh, pace and timing is an art form itself and difficult to master. The ability to select the perfect music track, reconstruct it, and then weave it into any scene is a standalone art form in itself and not mastered by every single editor. All of the complexity of cutting pictures together with all of the accompanying rules and visual laws and grammar is definitely an art form in itself as well. And as we discovered last weekend, so is dialogue editing. These were the thoughts that were swirling around in my mind 20 years ago when I was first walking around the streets of Soho in central London, the epicentre of the UK's post-production scene. I remember watching other editors work and thinking, wow, they are so much better than me. You know, how on earth am I going to get to that level? It was difficult. It was uncomfortable. But for some reason, it awoke an insatiable thirst for knowledge within me. Now, ever since I was young, I tend to go through these cycles of being obsessed with a certain area of knowledge and I read voraciously around it, devouring it up and then and then moving on to, you know, another subject. I would discover new literary characters or subjects within science or politics or history or whatever or art that really intrigued me and then go and buy the top five books on the subject and just immerse myself for the next couple of months. And around 20 years ago, One of these subjects just happened to be the Renaissance in medieval Italy. It still stands as one of the most amazing artistic periods in history and changed the face of Europe forever. After nearly a thousand years of cultural and scientific stagnation, an explosion of painting and sculpture, writing, music, architecture and many other art forms as well as science spread across Italy like a wildfire. For the first time, we had real perspective and emotion in paintings. We had sculptures that looked lifelike, and we had rapid evolutions in science and philosophy. This was the short period of time that gave us, amongst many others, master artists like Titian, Michelangelo, and of course, the ultimate Renaissance man, Leonardo da Vinci. It was also the backdrop for the dramatic and treacherous courts in the city-states of places like Florence and Milan. The Renaissance gave birth to political dynasties like the Medici family, who were one of the main drivers in creating modern banking and capitalism. They also funded famous artists with their money and fought with their rivals for power and control of Florence, as well as the Pope's throne in Rome. You also had characters like the Puritan fanatic Savonarola, who said that the people of Florence had become corrupt and should burn all of their property in the city square in what he called a bonfire of the vanities. Or the political advisor Machiavelli, who wrote the book The Prince, which is still, after 500 years, 
one of the most popular books on political intrigue and manipulating people that has ever been published. I absolutely loved reading about it. It was dramatic, it was emotional, it was artistic. It was like the plot of one of the best films or novels that I'd ever read. And an enormous amount of who we are culturally can be traced back to that period of time. But out of all of the fascinating things that I read about this period, it was the concept of the Renaissance man and Renaissance woman that intrigued me the most. Maybe it was the alignment of where I was myself at the time and the struggles I was going through trying to carve out a career in an art form that I loved but knew very little about how it worked. Who knows? I have no idea. But it fascinated me. So what are Renaissance men and women? What do they do? What are their traits? Well, by way of explanation, it's an interesting exercise to compare education today and how it was perceived 500 years ago. In today's world, let's say you go to university and you want to study science. You wouldn't just study science, you'd study some branch of science like physics, chemistry or biology. But it wouldn't stop there. You'd then go on to specialize in one tiny and specific branch within these branches of science. It could be anything, epigenetics or molecular biology or quantum mechanics, whatever. The point is, is that it's highly specialized and also highly fragmented. It's similar in the field of medicine. Most doctors and surgeons specialize in a very specific area of the body and its function. Eyes or the throat or the intestinal system, you know, the list is obviously endless. The modern era is the era of breaking down and specializing in knowledge to such a precise and tiny degree that broader all-round knowledge of a subject is kind of unheard of nowadays. Now, of course, the benefits to this are huge across our culture, but to the people who lived 500 years ago in cities like Florence and Milan, this would have been totally alien. One of the philosophies that grew out of that age was that of the balanced individual who was on a path to fulfilling their human potential. It wasn't specialization. It was more of an all-round talent. They were good at art. Um, they understood politics, history, culture. They may be good at public speaking, but they could also be physically fit and appreciate things like good rhetoric and oratory. They were talented in many areas of human endeavor, and this was considered to be the mark of someone who was at the top of the cultural ladder. Now, I love this concept, and as soon as I read about it, I began to filter it slowly into my life. And it wasn't easy. You know, reading complex philosophical concepts, which I couldn't understand, to be honest with you, I, I still don't understand a lot of them, uh, trying to digest scientific and political theories, which were, were completely over my head, and creating a database of music genres and, and artistic theories, which I really struggled with, and I still really struggle with. But the journey was the point. There are so many clever and talented people out there who've written and created so many amazing things, and trying to teach myself just how to read and appreciate their work was extremely difficult. But in all honesty, I loved it, and I still do. Nowhere do I feel personally more alive than when I'm trying to figure something out, which is inherently complex, and I haven't yet cracked 
the puzzle, you know, found out the keys to its magic. And that, to me, really is the essence of the art of editing. It was all this that was happening to me as I started to climb the complex mountain that is creative editing over two decades ago. And the parallels in our art form as I sat and digested and and analysed what it took to rise through the ranks were absolutely fascinating. Around the millennium, I had managed some limited success in getting myself an agent and doing small bits of work in television. I'd worked in daytime and late night TV cutting short VT packages, just a couple of minutes long. And I'd worked on a few reality TV shows and their late night spin-off shows that were less prestigious. But even though it was going okay, I really did have my sights on long form, on documentary and on docudramas. I used to stand back in awe as I would pass by the edit suites of senior editors in post facilities and, you know, just grab a sneaky peek through the windows to see if I could catch a glimpse of their creative process. I mean, it's it's kind of embarrassing now to admit, but I'd actually sit down on the couches outside their edit suites having lunch and pretending not to be interested in their conversations that I'd be deliberately trying to overhear in, in, in muffled tones. You can learn a lot from mulling around a post house. It's actually quite surprising. Half-heard conversations and comments about scenes or ideas people were having, you know, things like that. Of course, never as much as you would by sitting at the back of an edit suite and just listening to hours of conversations between the director and the editor. But no one had that kind of access. But it was in these stolen phrases and half-heard conversations that I started to realise that going from two-minute daytime TV sequences to feature-length documentaries was really going to require a calculated and highly structured learning journey. If the phrases like pacing, scoring, journalism, structure, intercutting, narrative, and a hundred others that I started hearing again and again and again, you know, if these were part of the everyday language and skill set of a high-end editor, then I'd need to do a kind of creative inventory of where I was in each one of these departments and what I was lacking. And it was around this time that I realised that editing was not one art form, but many based on the categories and repeated words I was hearing again and again. Each one of them seemed to be a different skill, a different specialisation, an individual art form within the whole. I noticed that some genres in editing were only interested in a few of these categories. For example, I did a few days' work at a new digital sports channel where the whole content output was cutting stylized promos of football matches and tennis games and things like that. Dialogue wasn't important, nor was journalism, uh, but scoring and montage editing and the ability to craft action and picture pacing was essential. Every genre seemed to have their particular compartments of skills and abilities. And I analysed so many specialised editing artists' work in those early days. Their work was amazing and I was really inspired. But at that time, I had that idea of the Renaissance artist gnawing away at me. To be a balanced editor, to be someone who could turn their skills to pretty much any genre, Well, I would have to learn all of these different skills. And this meant serious structural and stylizational analysis. 
There were no books, courses, film schools or anything like that around at the time that were doing anything like this. Indeed, there still isn't. This meant looking at every genre and seeing what constitutes the main skills in each one. Standing back a bit, the main question is, why? Why would I want to do this? Well, it's a good question, and I think there's a couple of good reasons. In the first five years of my career, I wanted to have as many potential clients as possible so that I would never be out of work and could always pay my rent. Having a wide range of skills on my CV, you know, it was going to raise the percentage of my employability every single month. And that's extremely important to someone starting out. If you can't earn money, then you're kind of finished before you've even started. Secondly, and this was an interesting one, in many offhand conversations with other editors, I had heard about pigeonholing, especially with in-house editors. You get known for something while being a staff editor at a production company or broadcaster, but then you're never really given the chance to break out and prove yourself on anything else. And this is much harder if you're in-house than if you're freelance. I remember seeing older editors who had been cutting only cookery shows and things like that for the last 20 years. And I thought, I really don't want to be manacled like that. And I guess thirdly, and finally, it was the sheer intellectual challenge of it all. Why master three areas of editing when you could master 15? Why limit myself when I would try and go as far as I could? It wasn't about outshining anyone. It was about pushing myself to my own personal limitations. And that has always been a huge driver for me. And for any Renaissance artist, I think. I'd seen editors who were great at certain aspects of editing, like stylization, montages and scoring, but really lacked the ability to craft their sync at the same high level. Or editors who were great at journalism in, say, documentary, and structure and narrative and things like that. But get them to stylize a cool-looking montage, and they just, they just fell over. They couldn't do it. Even today, I have friends who get work going in and doing things like a comedy pass in a big feature film because the main editor can't quite nail the comic timing 100%. Breaking down the parts like a scientific experiment and looking at every single piece individually became my obsession. You know, looking at the unique ways in which each genre relied on differing amounts of these categories, and more specifically, how they work together as a whole was absolutely fascinating to me, and ever so slowly dragged me up towards a professional level. How does the movement of a camera influence the pacing of a sequence in observational footage, for example? Or how do you design the journalistic jump-off points when intercutting two narratives in a political documentary? How do you build the spacing in between each word for maximum dramatic effect in a reality TV show? Obviously, the list was endless. And I began to see this journey in the light of everything I'd read about becoming a Renaissance man in an art form that had never really been written down before and shrouded in mystery, this was where the frontier seemed to be for me. Now, everyone has their own creative journey. 
and it's still one of my favorite pastimes, listening to filmmaking geniuses and, and hearing about their journey through to creative maturity. One of my kind of geeky pastimes was, you know, I'd lock myself away from friends and girlfriends over a weekend and take one filmmaker and watch their entire catalog of films in order to see how they progressed in all of these departments from one film to the next. Watching a gifted artist evolve is so inspiring. But of course, the downside of the aspiration to become this Renaissance editor as I climbed up through the ranks was a very uncomfortable inventory at multiple different stages throughout my career. At the start, I realized I was only really sort of okay-ish in a few of these areas. In some of these areas, I was just downright terrible. And so holding a mirror up to my creative abilities felt painful and awkward. But therein lies growth. It's impossible to grow at anything without a brutally honest appraisal of where we're at. It's so important to take the ego out of it. The difficulty in editing is that you never really get the kind of feedback from anyone that would make you grow. As directors and producers, are, they're just not aware of the intricacies of our art form. And why should they be? They've got a completely different art form to master, which is also inherently complex. They can't communicate to us for example, that we need to decompress the sync speed in the second half of this scene to create a slowed down tempo that matches the action and the music change. I've been lucky enough to work with some amazing directors in my career, but when they do give feedback, it's in director's language and not in editor's language. And I think that's an important distinction to make. The only true feedback you really get from a client at the end of the day is re-employment. If they liked your work, they'll ask you back on the next project. These are treacherous waters to navigate, exposing our creative shortcomings to ourselves while we try to build our skills and evolve, while at the same time not showing them to our clients in case they won't want to work with us again is pretty difficult. Very few people feel comfortable employing a work in progress. There's just too much money at stake in this art form. But I always find solace and inspiration and drive in constantly immersing myself in editing artists' work that I love, respect, and admire, and continuously asking myself how they did this, how they did that, how they managed to create this kind of feeling or that kind of tempo that elicited a specific emotion. There are so many astonishingly good Renaissance editing artists out there. I study and grade how good they are in all of their differing departments of our art form. And then I look at my own abilities in similar areas. And so, dear friends, as part of our motivational January on Once Upon a Timeline, I really do hope you find your path to becoming a Renaissance editor, your path to discovering all that is possible within you. I'm not the best editor in the world. I'm also not the worst editor. But that really doesn't matter to me. What matters is the journey and continuously asking myself if I'm fulfilling my potential in this beautiful art form of ours. The Renaissance editor can serve as a creative paradigm or target or aspiration for all of us in becoming the well-rounded and talented artists that deep down we all know we can be. I wish you the very best of luck on that journey. Thank you.
Well, I hope you all enjoyed this week's creative discussion, dear friends. It's time now for this week's Ask Paddy. I received an email from Scott in California just after Christmas. Scott wrote, Hi Paddy, I love the podcast and can't wait to hear more in the new year. Thank you, Scott. I'm working on a doc at the moment and am considering including narration. But I know little about it and it would be great to get some info and tips on using narration effectively. When to use it or not to use it within a scene, why it's used, pros and cons, etc, etc. Great question, Scott. Thanks for sending that in. So, narration. Big subject and a very interesting subject. As you'd imagine, uh, there's quite a few things to consider from a creative point of view. So let's delve into some of them. We are actually planning a whole big section on voiceover in the Inside the Edit course, but I'm going to go through some of the big headlines here to give you a head start. So why do we use narration or voiceover or whatever you want to call it, and how is it used? Well, It's got a number of different great uses. Um, Many times it's here to act as a kind of objective guide to the subjects in the film. Um, A voice that is describing and illuminating various areas of the narrative for the audience in a way that is kind of emotionally separate from the characters. You know, that's one big use. Another big use is it can act as more of a personal guide to the events because, you know, the narrator has been or is part of the story in some way. Think of Johnny Depp's very personal narration in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, where he's retrospectively telling the story of what happened to him from some point in the future. In those cases, it's a very strong narrative tool. Voiceover is also used in corporate films to describe what a company does or sell the features of a product in a commercial. It's also used in entertainment and reality TV shows for descriptive and comedic purposes that heavily tease up the upcoming dialogue in some way. News reports have voiceover that act as a kind of continuation of the reporter's piece to camera that so often is at the start of a news report and at the end. Now, as you asked about documentaries, Scott, I think it's probably worth starting by pointing out that, as I'm sure you know, there's lots of different types of documentaries. Of course, there's many different subjects and styles and genres, but for the purposes of voiceover, I'm talking more about the target audience. You know, on one end of the scale... There's the kind of tabloid-type television documentaries where the voiceover, you know, is really here to spell out and lay it on thick in a way that leaves absolutely nothing to chance in the mind of the viewer. You know, think kind of low-end crime documentaries full of, you know, cheap archive footage and films like that where the assumed attention or complexity level of the audience is quite low. In these lowbrow genres, it's very common for the voiceover to repeat itself in order to stretch out as much time as possible. Tell the audience what's about to happen in voiceover. When it's happening, tell them what they're seeing, 
And then when it's over, tell them what they've just seen. In a classic one, two, three in lowbrow voiceover. You know, it can be very tabloid and not think too much about the, the mind of the viewer. You know, nothing is left to assume. There's no level of ambiguity at all. There's no poetry or artistic nature to the language at all. You know, it's kind of like you're reading an article in a, in a tabloid newspaper. Of course, at the other end of the range, you've got a highly intelligent voiceover that is open to ambiguity, that is there to make you think and trigger unique and differing perceptions about, you know, loads of different aspects of the film. Go and watch any film by one of my favorite documentary filmmakers, Adam Curtis, who basically uses the genre of documentary to cut an enormous amount of archive to what is essentially a 60-minute political and cultural essay in the form of narration. But many genres use voiceover, especially in broadcast, as a kind of gap filler when two scenes or concepts or characters need to be linked together and the sync isn't strong enough to create that link or that chain of logic, then the voiceover will be brought in to do that job. You know, I often think, especially in television, of voiceover like, like glue. It can summarize complex concepts in, say, a science documentary, or it can articulate a jump in time or narrative. Um, it can set up jeopardy, foreshadow events, or reinforce weak sync. It can also tell the audience where they are and what's going on at the start of a new scene. There are so many uses, and I've pretty much gone through every variation myself over the course of my career, as many pro editors also have. But the key question to ask is the question we should ask ourselves about everything in any element on our timeline. Why? What is this bringing to our particular film? As with everything we do, there's got to be a legitimate, dramatic or journalistic or structural reason to have narration, to have voiceover. Certainly in the doc community, there are a small group of purists who think that narration is cheating and should never be used. I'm actually not one of those people myself, but I do respect that opinion. Um, I recently watched the documentary Diego about the footballer Diego Maradona, which had absolutely no narration in it at all. This, of course, is much harder to craft as all the structure and narrative and jump-off points must be done by the characters themselves, which is no small feat of accomplishment. But in answer to your question, Scott, I would ask why, and is it really something that you need that you couldn't do with, say, titles? I think another question to ask would be, who's going to be writing it? Is it you? Is it the director? You know, this matters, as good narration is often a very light touch and needs to be written really well. You know, someone's really got to have the confidence in their abilities as a narration writer. There's nothing worse than watching a doc and the narration has been forced in or badly written or it's overly long and unnecessarily descriptive. Finally, I would ask, who's the audience? You know, is it a certain age group? Is it a certain demographic? All of these things will also define the type of language 
that we use if there is any voiceover. I would use very different language in a film aimed at, say, teenagers than I would aimed at an over-50s demographic. But whatever the answers to these questions may be for you, Scott, a great narration, when crafted well, is really nice to blend into a doc. It can be a beautiful and subtle way to hold the hand of our audience through the ups and downs of our film. I hope this helps you with your decision about narration in your current film, Scott, and thank you for sending it in. If you'd like one of your creative questions answered on the show, just drop me an email to podcast at insidetheedit.com and we'll get your question on a future episode. I love hearing from our community and answering your questions, so please, please do keep them coming. Well, if you want to learn this and hundreds of other high-end techniques used in the professional editing world, come and sign up to Inside the Edit. We are the industry's only professional-level creative editing course. We don't teach the software or the buttons or all the other tech stuff that everyone else teaches. We teach the art of editing, what the industry actually wants you to know. And we're trusted by thousands of editors around the world and many of the industry's biggest broadcasters and production companies who use our course. Learn at your own pace with over 100 tutorials at InsideTheEdit.com. And it's another exciting time for us here as we've just turned the booking live for our next two-week master degree taster. If you want a fortnight's free creative edit training and a glimpse into our revolutionary master's degree run in partnership with Ravensbourne University in London, just head on over to our site and book your place right now. It won't cost you a penny. Our master's degree is 100% online, so you can do it from anywhere in the world. And it's the only degree that replicates the real-world scenarios of elite-level creative editing. Head on over to the master's degree page on InsideTheEdit.com and claim your spot right now. They are very limited. Okay, there we go, dear friends. That is a wrap for episode four of this second season of Once Upon a Timeline. A massive shout out to our good friends over at Universal Production Music who supply every single track to everything we do at Inside the Edit. As usual, if you like any of these tracks you've heard on this week's show and you think they'd be perfect for something you're cutting right now, We've listed them all with links to the Universal site on the Season 2 Ep4 page at InsideTheEdit.com. Thank you, dear friends, for being part of this growing Inside the Edit community and all of the kind words you send to us week in, week out. We make this podcast to help you master this beautiful art form. And it's always amazing hearing about your progress. I absolutely love it. If you like the show and have a spare 30 seconds, we'd really appreciate a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. 
And of course, please, please, please do share it with all your filmmaking friends so that we can keep this show growing. There we go, team. Another episode in the can. I hope you've enjoyed it. And I will see you very soon on another episode of Once Upon a Timeline. Next week, we won't be one day late. (laughs) Stay cool, stay safe, and stay cutting. 